You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture comes from Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, yet we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're with us for the first time, we're on... um, Week three, as we're looking at uh, four weeks uh, in the very first part of Hebrews. And uh, the letter of Hebrews, it's written to uh, a really a, a group that we can relate to. I mean, this group, they never actually saw, these early Christians, they never saw the person of Jesus. And so they, they would be able to witness, you know, talk to live witnesses. They would still be alive at the time. But they heard about Jesus. They read about Jesus. And they were encouraged to look more and more into Jesus. They also lived in a very pluralistic society where you start to find out that when you talk a lot about intolerance, there's not much tolerance for those who have an exclusive view of salvation alone in the person of Jesus. And so persecution was mounting, and so the writer of Hebrews, who we we don't know who it was, the writer of Hebrews writes to them to say, listen, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look only at Jesus. Look away from other things to really focus on the person of Jesus. And it is here in Hebrews 2 that we get a great warning. Uh, Actually, I think it's the greatest danger that that Christians that we actually face. The greatest danger, a lot of times we want to hypothesize what this is. I remember uh, when I was still doing uh, student ministry, uh, the book, The Da Vinci Code, came out. and Everybody was like freaking out about it. Like everyone is going to walk away from the church because they read The Da Vinci Code. And I read it. It's a great book. And I, I don't think everyone walked away. 
Or, or we think a lot of times, man, it's going to be this agenda that's coming at us. This is the thing that's going to be the greatest threat to the church. Or some sort of affrontal of sin. But that's not what chapter 2 of Hebrews says at all. It says the greatest danger to your faith for you not to live in a way that the kingdom of God is real is one word, drifting. The danger to our faith is that our eyes get turned to other things that we start to think maybe the dangers out there are what we need to focus on or we start to think that this other thing is what's really going to save us or we start to think if we have this kind of power or we have this kind of voice from up high, then we'll be okay. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, if you stop looking and looking again and looking again to the person of Jesus, the reason of Christmas at all, like the incarnation of God that came, if you stop looking again and again to the person of Jesus, you will drift. You'll drift. I grew up... Um, with a boat, um, and it was the perfect boat. Like, it wasn't a nice boat. Like, when I say perfect boat, don't think nice. Um, like, actually, a nice boat is the worst kind of boat to have because then you're freaking out about all the time. You can't ever pull up to a dock because you can't dock a boat without scratching it if you live in Kansas, you know? And so I, I grew up with the, the perfect boat. Like, it had plenty of power to devastate even the strongest among us upon a tube. I can't tell you how many pairs of shorts were lost momentarily because the power of that boat on a tube. It had the power, like, we, we would always try to barefoot, never once successfully, but we would just grab the rope, hold it behind our heads, on our back, you know, hammer down the boat and go as fast as we could until you get up on the top of the water and you're just kind of skipping around like this and you think, I'll try to turn around. And you try to turn around to ride up on your feet only to flip around. It was always a crowd favorite. It was the perfect kind of boat because it could pull anyone up. Like if you were big or if you were small, you could be pulled up. I once skied on an oar. True story. It was the perfect kind of boat because you could dock it. If you hit the dock and put a big gash in it, we just called it a successful docking. That boat, we uh, replaced multiple covers, two floors. We had two floors that failed us in that boat, and we replaced one engine because one year we decided to save money and winterize it ourselves. It was not quite the money-saving hack that we thought it might be. But that was uh, the first day that we took the boat out, which if you've ever owned a boat and you live in a place where there's lots of seasons, there's always a first day of taking the boat out. And something will always go wrong on the first day. You know, you might not put the plug in and then you don't realize it till the back of the boat is riding really, really low. Or, or you might not have the battery fully charged and then what happens is the battery goes dead and then you can just picnic out on the lake. Or you forget sunscreen and you find out painfully that you need sunscreen. I think about this. I read that if you've been badly sunburned like five times in your life, you have an 80% chance more likelihood of skin cancer. Like, engrave my tomb now. I mean, uh, 80 per five times? Have you seen my skin tone? I mean, my mom used to tell me that they, like, all the freckles on my shoulders were angel kisses. She lied. They're not angel kisses. I mean, something would always go bad on the first day out. And so it was the first day out. It wasn't our first rodeo, which I don't know how, what has to do about going to the lake, but it wasn't our first rodeo. 
and we back the boat up. I'm on the boat. I take it off the trailer, and I just kind of pull out, and I kind of look out over the lake, Call Lake, and I thought, man, we're about to conquer this lake. And I look over the water, and I thought, man, the water seems so shiny. Like, I don't remember the water being this shiny. And all of a sudden, I look back, and the back of the boat is slowly kind of going down. And I think, oh, we didn't put the plug in. But it was sinking far faster than what I've ever experienced in my life. I pull the engine cover back. I'm the only one in the boat. I pull the engine cover back, and we are pumping water into the boat because we saved money by winterizing it ourselves, and we cracked the block. And so I shut off the engine. And we're still kind of sinking. We have this moment of like, I can either grab skis and oars and try to row ourselves back in, or I could just drift and see what happens. And the problem was drifting had no guarantee to get us to the destination that we needed, which was the trailer in front of us. And it had no guarantee to get us there in time. There was no guarantee at all. But drifting was so much easier than the slalom ski and rowing. Now, I'm here, so you know I survived. We, I did live. I, I, I told one story about almost drowning on the spillway, and someone was like, I got to know what happened. I'm like, I'm here. You know I lived, you know? But drifting. Hebrews tells us the same thing. Drifting is easier, but it's also our greatest danger. Are you drifting? You see, the key not to drift is to know where you are and know where you go and then to apply effort to get there. And I'm not talking about like a self-saving. I'm not talking anything that would pull away uh, from God alone, faith alone, Christ alone. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about what the Hebrews writer is wanting us to know, that there's a danger when our eyes get distracted and we don't look to the person of Jesus. See, it looks a lot like having a season of fighting your faith. But suddenly fighting gets hard and you start to think, man, is this all necessary? You start to think, does it have to be this hard? The grip on your life starts to loosen. You start to let grow and go cold. And then you find that you don't have the strength any longer to look up. See, this happens in personal disciplines, spiritual disciplines. We stop fighting the flesh and we just want to see what happens. This happens in churches where we start to question the priority and the supremacy of the gospel. We start to ask, is it worth suffering and losing all other preferences to lift the gospel up high? This happens in the life of false converts. See, you have a story You have a season of involvement, and then you just drift. And so when someone asks you about about your faith, you say, man, I tried that. This is how God entered my life, and this is what I tried to do, but it just didn't last. I just drifted. The Hebrews wants us to know, like, are you drifting? And so we're going to start off, and it's going to say the greatest danger to us is drifting, verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 8, it's going to answer this question by quoting the Old Testament, who we are. You need to know who God created you to be. And then, you know, when we see the failure of what we were created to be and the failure of us to hold that, then we're going to ask this question, who is Jesus? And then finally, like, what is the hope? 
And so let's just get started. Look at verse 1. It says this. Excuse me. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And this is the warning. Lest we drift away from it. For the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then it talks about how we got that great salvation. It was declared first by the Lord Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard the apostles. Why God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so what's the danger? Drifting. The danger is we stop paying close, those are the words, paying close attention to Jesus and what he's like and what he says about God and how he interacts with us. And we start letting our eyes drift to think about other things, maybe even good things. And so this means a couple things. Like first, like paying close attention, it means we accept the entire Bible as the word of God. Like verse 2. Look back at verse 2. It says, For since the message declared by the angels... Now, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago because this is kind of the conclusion of all of chapter 1. But like just this, like the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. That is talking about Mount Sinai, the law of God that we have. And so that would expand that. We would just say like all the revelation that we have that was pointing to Jesus ultimately in the Old Testament. And so like if we're going to break that down, like what we have is at the very beginning, we have the creation account. We have how this came into, into existence. And then we have the fall of humanity. And then the rest of the Bible is trying to figure out because of the fall, how can we live before the throne of God again? How can we be made right And so then you have the law of God, which is what verse 2 is talking about. And then it opens up and it tells us about the sacrificial system, which is a pointer that we need some sort of atonement. Something has to pay for where we failed. And then it goes into the prophecies. That's what we have in the Old Testament, all of these things building. And this is the thing that we have in John 5. Jesus standing before the religious class. In John 5, verse 39, he says this. He says about all of this, all the revelation that they would have looked at. He says this about the Pentateuch, the law. He says this about the prophets. He says this about everything that's there. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll have eternal life. And then it says this, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then it jumps down and says, for if you believed Moses... For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus stood before the religious class and he says, yeah, rightfully so. You look for salvation in the Old Testament, but you're missing it because it was all pointing to me. This tells us we need to pay close attention to the entire word of God. That's why we're doing lamentations. I mean, we took a break because everyone needed a break. Like, I know somebody, like, man, it's just sad. I, you know, do we have to keep looking at it? I'm like, yeah, it's the word of God. We got to keep looking at it till it's done. Okay. And so first, paying close attention means we accept the entire Bible as the word of God. Paying close attention means that we don't look somewhere else to satisfy us. Look at verse 3. It says, and how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglect, it just means this. 
It means we stop looking. When you neglect something, you stop considering it. This is why I've never had a house plant that lived. If it can't survive on its own, it's not going to make it. Because you look to other things. So first it said neglect. Then it says, look, it's such a great salvation. It just means that this salvation found in Jesus is the highest pinnacle. It's the final message of God. There's nothing more to come. It's greater than anything the angels had done. That's what we did last week. Jesus is greater than the angels. And then finally, like what paying close attention means is it means we think, we study, and we look into. See, verses 3 through 4, it just tells us about the transmission of the New Testament. The message is Jesus. We were told by those who witnessed Jesus. And then God confirmed with miraculous signs and wonders as recorded in both the Old and New Testament. And then we have the gifts of the Spirit that build up the church still bit witness. And the greatest dangers that we just take our eyes off this. I was, I was thinking about this. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he warns us of the same thing. In Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, if you examine a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. That means if you go to person after person who has a story of, yeah, I was in the church, and man, I heard those stories, and I did the VBS thing, and I did all that stuff. He says, but they walked away. He says, how many of those people, when you ask, why did you walk away, would they say, man, I, there was this argument, I just couldn't answer the question. He goes on and he says, do not most people simply drift away? So this is, this is the first warning. If you're here with us and you're like, man, I don't even know. I mean, I just came because it's Christmas time and I thought maybe I should or I got conned into this. And I mean, I don't hate it, hate it, but I don't, you know, Whatever. Like the question is this, like if you have doubts in your faith, is it not because you're not looking and studying, but you're just drifting? The first warning that we have is this danger about drifting. We're so prone to think that our greatest danger is some sort of political agenda. Hebrews 2 says that is we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. The Jesus who said every bird that falls, every bird that falls, he knows about and he loves you more than that. The Jesus who spoke Matthew 6. Or, or we're in danger of thinking our greatest danger is a virus, but Hebrews 2 says that it's allowing our eyes to drift from Jesus, who is before all things and holding all things together, according to Colossians 1. See, we might think that our greatest danger is an isolation, a lack of normalcy, or a loneliness. Life just isn't the way it used to be, and I want it back. Hebrews 2 said that our greatest danger is drifting from Jesus, who, if we look at Philippians 4, verse 5, it says, Jesus, who is presently at hand, right here. And I think the reality is, matter of fact, like, it's putting our eyes so securely on those things that is actually causing the tide of our life to drift away. And so Hebrews comes and says, be careful. 
Look to Jesus often, lest you drift. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, I, I think I'm drifting. Like, I've got, I've got an advice, and it, it's a spiritual discipline that I think we all need to apply to our lives. You need to take the word of God on a walk. And I, I, I'm just, I think that's, maybe that's specific. Maybe you don't actually have to go on a walk, but you might need to take the word of God on a walk. See, like, if you're scared that God doesn't see your suffering, take Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34 on a walk that says God is aware of every sparrow that falls, so he is aware of you. And I think you need to take it and you need to meditate it. That means, that's what it means to fix your eyes. Walk with it. Or, or if you're scared that sickness is beyond God's control in your life or coming into your life, you need to take a Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 on a walk. And think about if God is before all things, that means he's seen it. If he has seen all things, he knows what to expect. If he's holding all things together, he can certainly hold your life together. Or if you're restless because life is still not normal, you need to take Philippians 4, 4 through 7 on a walk. It says that God is presently at hand. He is with you in the disordered sense of your life right now. And I keep saying, take it on a walk. Um, you, you, perhaps you're familiar with EMDR therapy. Um, and so EMDR therapy was actually discovered in 1987 by Francine Shapiro, but she actually just discovered what the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, has already said, where you take God's word as you go. What she found was she had experienced a lot of trauma, and she found that she would go walk in the woods. And when she would walk in the woods, and she would just kind of look at scenery around her and think about the trauma, the traumatic past, or whatever is bothering her, she just would come back and she'd think, I feel so much better. I physically feel better. I emotionally feel better. And she started to ask the question, why? Why is it after I go on a walk and I think about what's bothering me, why do I feel better? And what she discovered was that eye movement, horizontal eye movement, helps your brain categorize traumatic events. And so they developed this type of therapy. And we already had it before us in God's word. In Deuteronomy 6, as you go, as you go, Focus upon Jesus and what he is for you and what he says about you as you go. The very first thing that we see here is that our greatest danger is letting our eyes, thoughts, and hearts drift to other things. But then in the rest of the verses, what we see is the hope of Christmas. So first thing, drifting, danger. Second, who are we? And this is going to tell us we are God's special creation made in his image to rule this world with him. And so if you look in verses 5 through 8, what you're going to see is the writer of Hebrews is trying to prove to these early Christians who understood the Old Testament. They were Hebrew in nature. They understood it. And he says, listen, it's always been this way. Look back at Psalms 8. And he quotes from it. And so look at this. In verse 5 it says, For it was not to angels that God subjugated the world to come of which we are speaking. 
And so this is defining us in our role in this world. He says it wasn't to angels that God said this. It was to us. And so it goes on, look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere that somewhere is Psalms 8. It encourages me so much when the writer of Hebrews quotes scripture like I do. Somewhere it says this. And so that somewhere is Psalms 8, word for word. It says this, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And so he just asks this question, why do you think about us? Why do you help us? Why do you even like us? And it's a decent question. It goes on in verse 7. It says this, For you have made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. And that just means we're not as powerful as angels. We talked about that last week. Jesus is far greater than angels, but angels still really, really scare us. That's why their first word when they show up is fear not. Because they terrify us. It goes on. It says, You have crowned him, that him is us. And so this is Psalms that you have crowned him, you crowned us with glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his, our feet. And then Psalms 8, it points back to God's original design for humanity and creation when it says this. Then, and so it, 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 it's pointing back to the original idea of creation. Psalms 8 is looking back at how we were created, like in a Genesis 2.26, when God said, I will make them in our image, in our likeness. And then he says, and they will have dominion, and then it lists everything, dominion over the seas and over the earth. And so it says this, who are we? We are created in God's image to rule in this world, to have dominion, and we blew it. Like if you go back and you look at the creation account, you have two counts of creation. The reason why they're different is one is just spelling it out and one is a song. That's why they sound different. When you sing, it sounds different, like you repeat yourself more. And so you have two accounts of creation and then you step in and you have the fall of humanity. Like we blew it, like literally after the two accounts of creation, we have seven verses that we get it right and it ends with Genesis 2 verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Like God knew what he was doing and we blew it. See, we were made to be God's faithful stewards, ruling this magnificent world. And then Genesis 3 happened. And so that's what Psalms 8, the writer of Hebrews says, Christian, do you know who you are? And he quotes Psalms 8 to say, you were made to subjugate this world, to have dominion over this world. He never said that to the angels. Why is God mindful of us? Because it's his good pleasure to be mindful of us. Who are we? God made us less powerful than angels, but crowned us with privilege to work with him, ruling over this world, and we fail. This is who we are. The Bible tells us how we got here. And in verses 8 through 9, it explains how God gets us out of this doomed predicament it tells us who Jesus is. We have the danger of drifting. 
We need to know who we are. So the Hebrews writer, he wants us to know who we are. And then he wants us to know who Jesus is. And it's going to say this. Jesus is the man God who entered in to suffer and die to earn back our original glorious position. And so to understand what is here, we have to see that verses 6 through 8 is quoting Psalms 8. And when he's quoting Psalms 8, every time we see him or his, it's talking about us. And then after he's done quoting Psalms 8 at the end of verse 8... All of a sudden, he explains what he's been quoting, and the hymns and his change, and now they refer to Jesus. And so look at this. In verse 8, it says this. Verse 8, the second part of it, says this. Now, in putting everything in subject to him, that him is Jesus, in putting everything in subject to him, he left nothing outside of his, Jesus' control. And so now we have the comments. And so he quoted the Old Testament, and now he's explaining it. And he's saying, listen, we were made to have dominion in this world. We were made to look like God. We were made to work with him. But it didn't last. And that audience would have understood, yeah, I know how we got there. And then he says, now let me explain it. And he says, now putting everything in subject to him, a different him, Jesus. He left nothing outside of his, Jesus' control. And then verse 8, it says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjugation, in subjugation to him, Jesus. When you look at your world, not everything outside of you is fully surrendered to God. When you look at your life, not all your relationships are fully surrendered to God. When you look at the people you love, a lot of them find themselves outside, enemies against God, like they don't know what to think about Jesus. They might be indifferent to him or they might be like really, really against him. When you look inside your heart, the danger is I see a lot of things inside my heart that are not subject to Jesus. Sin still runs amok, sickness still takes, death still looms. But look, it starts to answer that. Look at verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so right there, he unpacks the incarnation. God made himself a little lower than the angels for a little while, for specifically for a lifetime, and then his suffering and his death. In those things, we have hope. And so right there, unpacks the message of Christmas where we might ask, who is this Jesus? Jesus is God-made man who entered in to make himself lower than the angels just for a little while in his humanity that he might suffer in our place but do it perfectly without sin so that he might fulfill the role that we were supposed to do so that we could be united with God forever and ever. The danger's drifting. Who are we We were created to be God's like viceroy in this world and we failed. Who is Jesus? He came to be a replacement for us. And then the final question, what is our hope? And the hope is the Christmas message. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Just a couple phrases. For it was fitting. 
The, the, the Greek word there, it means perfectly suited. And so when we think about the Christmas message that God entered in, it was the perfectly suited answer for our problem. Where we had failed, someone had to step in to succeed. And so if we talk about, we talked about the whole span of God's word, like ultimately we, what we have is we have several different covenants, promises, where God comes to Abraham, or God comes you know, to different sets of people, and he says, listen, if you do this, I will do that. And over and over, we said collectively, sounds like a great deal. We will do it. But we failed, and we failed. And we failed. And so the Christmas message is God becoming man to hold our side of the covenant, our side that we can never hang on to. And so in the bridge that bridges humanity to God, we have Jesus holding both sides of the covenant. He's the perfect missionary hanging on to God himself and then entering into our culture, hanging on to us in all our frailty and all our fear. He was substituted in for it was fitting. He's the perfect suited solution the next phrase it says he was made perfect through suffering christmas says that the perfectly saluted solution to our problem is jesus coming down and suffering in our place taking on all our failures taking on the punishment that was meant for us the third phrase bringing many sons to glory because of christmas because Jesus came down to fulfill what we could never fulfill. Because he suffered in our place. The whole goal was to glorify the Father by bringing many sons and daughters back to the glorious place where they were supposed to be in this world, relating to God himself. If you've ever wrestled with there's something missing in my life, if you've ever thought, is this all there is? If you've ever had moments that said, man, even on my best day when I do everything right, I still go to bed with a sense of gnawing that it's not enough. This is the answer. It's not enough. The whole idea of Christmas is God entered in because there was never enough that you could do to make it there. That's the whole picture of the Old Testament. Although you might do all the sacrifices, you might do them at the right time for the right reasons, there always had to be more. And so Jesus, once and for all, entered in and he suffered in our place. And then verse 11. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. The, the, the only source for this universe, you know, for the universe of mankind can be reset. It, it, the only source is Jesus, our greatest hope. It says, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Like, I, I don't want you to miss that. Jesus is not ashamed to claim you. Jesus is not ashamed to stand by you and with you. Jesus is not ashamed. And I know if we, if we unpacked all the stories in here, I know there would be people who said, you don't know what I've done. I am fully ashamed. This says, not Jesus. 
Or, or you would say, man, you don't know my shortcomings, though I try and try again. It's never enough. I, you don't know, not Jesus. Or you might say, man, you don't know. You don't know that there is a belief in me that if others knew what was really in me, they would walk away from me. And this says, this is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed. Jesus didn't walk away. The message of Christmas is pointing to the reality that Jesus walked in. He walked into the world to do something that we could never do. And then in this world, he walked to the cross to do something that we desperately needed. And then in this life, he promises to walk with us. To become a Christian, we have to accept the Christmas message that God walked in to declare there's a way that he can stand with you and he is not ashamed to stand with you. Jesus entered in to restore our original position with God so that we could one day, what this says is incredible, we could one day rule with God in glory. This is for everyone who says yes to Jesus, who says, looks at Jesus, says his life, his death, and his resurrection are more than enough to make me right before God. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus in the manger. But at the table, when we take communion, we celebrate that the life Jesus gave when he was made for just a little while, just a little while, a little lower than the angels in our place. We celebrate what brings us back to our original place. The faithful life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the way back. The question is, do you hope in that? Is that something you long to look for? And so really, even the practice of communion, like I want you to think of it like this, like if we think of the greatest danger that this said is drifting, that means we have to know what we're looking at. We have to know where we want to arrive. And Hebrews is going to answer that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to arrive to a place that we look more like that. We act more like that. When like the pressure of my life or the uncertainty of my life hits, like something else comes out of me than just my anxiety. And so it says, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. The reason we take communion every week, and I know it's different now, we're not coming forward, and we have these cheesy cups, and the wafer, I know it's not actually food. I mean, it is not bread, I know that. But it's because we pause for a moment to physically look at something. We pause for a moment to reorientate our lives, to look again, to say, listen, it is not a career that's going to sustain me. It is not a relationship that's going to save me. It is not like some sort of emotional health or a place that I get that's going to make me whole. I look to the person of Jesus and the death of his body, his broken spirit. I look to all of that, what happened on the cross. I look to that and then the resurrection to make me whole. And so Christian, if you look to Jesus to make you whole and you need to reorientate your life, we, we invite you to take communion with us. And so what we look at when we take communion is first, 
we start with the bread and remember that Jesus was made a little lower than angels for his earthly life. I mean, he put on flesh. God entered in, and it reminds us of his body. And so we remember that when we take the bread. Jesus put on flesh to stand in our place so we could be made whole. That is the story of Christmas. So we remember the body of Jesus broken for you. And then we look from the bread and we look to the cup. And we remember all the Old Testament that talks over and over. It even bridges its way to Revelations, the end of the Bible, about the wrath of God that had to be poured out. And we remember Jesus' words before he went to the cross. God, if there's any way to take this cup from me. But there wasn't. And so we look to the cup, a symbol that held the wrath of God mounting for us. But Jesus changed that. And he said, this cup, this is the blood of the covenant. And so we look to the cup and we remember Jesus, his blood poured out for our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, over and over, Hebrews points us to Jesus to say he's better than that. And so we look at all the messages that were unfolded throughout the scriptures and it comes to the person of Jesus and says, Jesus is the final message from God. He is the whole message, everything that we need. He is the perfect message. And then it goes to say, listen, look at the angelic beings. Jesus is greater than them. And then it goes to the incarnation to say, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, meaning human. He put on flesh that he might live among us, that he might stand in our place to hold our side of the covenant so that we could find our way back to God. And it's reminded that Jesus is more than a man. And so, Father, Lord, I pray that we would take those thoughts on a walk. I pray that we would take whatever might be distracting us and we would find the scriptures of how it points back to that and we would literally just take that on a walk and Lord, in your goodness, you would reorientate our minds to look at the person of Jesus. Lord, this Christmas, help us see Jesus more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.